I think that I sort of use the foundations of clay as a medium and the concept of narrative within my creative arts therapy practice in connection with 3D animation at my position at the animation project. So I, I really believe that clay, unlike other mediums, is one that's naturally responsive to human feelings. It, it, it really gets back down to the body. That's what we are. We are humans and we start with our body and everything is stored in the body. And so I think it has this vigorous power to sort of accurately and, and really absorb a, a person's emotions, like at any given moment, you know, in doing it sort of like yields your deepest feelings, even though you don't expect it to simply because you're touching it with your hands. And I think um, it sort of provides that emotional release. And so unlike other mediums where you have like a pencil in your hand and you have something mediating between you and the art form, I feel like you are the art and the art is you because you are really actually physically touching it. Welcome to the Egg Gap Evolution Podcast. I'm your host, Mariah Phillips. You can call me Mariah because that's my name. And I'm thrilled to have you on this journey with me and all of the spectacular guests who jump on the podcast to give you more options for educating children so that children have more options for building a magnificent future. The Egg Gap Evolution Podcast is a digital community where parents, educators, and innovators drop the details on how they are using their lives to help children explore the vastness of education beyond the textbook so that we can close America's education gap together. And just in case you didn't get the memo, producing a podcast is a whole lot of work. We're talking schedule coordination, production, the list goes on and on. So in return for bringing you this show every week, we just ask that you always find a way to share and use what you learn on the podcast to enrich children and families everywhere. Alrighty, without further ado, come along with me to meet our very next guest. Today, we're speaking with ceramics artist and creative art therapist, Nala Turner. I had the pleasure of hearing Nala speak for the first time during a panel for the New York International Children's Film Festival. And after hearing about her work as a lead art therapist at the Animation Project, I knew that you all would enjoy learning more about her work with art and kids. The Animation Project is a nonprofit therapeutic workforce development program unlocking the professional creative door for NYC young people with drive and talent. The organization develops New York City youth for the local animation industry through software training and prepares them with personal and professional development. Nala is truly a gem in every sense of the word, and I'm thrilled to have you here on the show. Nala, how are you? Hi, Mariah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm great. Um, I'm thrilled to have you and I'm sure everybody else will be too once that we get through this episode. So before <laughs> we jump into your work with the animation project and the, really the richness, oh, this is so exciting, the richness of your history with art, um, could you tell us what is art therapy and what does an art therapist do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, art therapy is a form of creative arts therapy. Um, so alongside dance movement therapy, drama, and music therapy, we all sort of live under the same umbrella. And it uses creative processes of art making to foster a person's physical, mental, and emotional well-being. Uh, creative arts therapists, in particular art therapy, because I am an art therapist, is distinguished from other forms of therapeutic treatment by really actively engaging and experiencing art materials, the visual process and the piece of art that actually is produced from it. So rather than using um, simply communication through talk, you know, using our voice. Um, we use the mode of communication within the therapeutic space as being creative um, processes and art making. Um, so whether the art is integrated into the already existing mental health practices of psychotherapeutic talk therapy, or the art is the therapy itself, 
um, we really are using that as a way to engage the mind and the body and the spirit in ways that are distinct from just verbal articulation alone. Awesome. Thank you so much for clarifying for us. And um, so I know that a big part of what you do and the work that you do in the art space has to do with um, clay because you you do a lot of work with ceramics. And so I'm wondering whether it be in your personal life, whether it be for um, your your business, which we'll get into a little bit later, or working with youth, um, there are so many art mediums that you or anyone could choose to work with. Um, and I don't doubt that you support many, but I just wonder why clay specifically? What what why is clay? Um, why does that that particular medium stand out to you as one that more people should use? Yeah, um, I've been practicing ceramics for thirteen years. Um, while art has always been a part of my life, ceramics became that medium that spoke for me the best. And I say for me because I'm a person who needs art to speak for me. Oftentimes, I was not someone who was in a space like this speaking. So clay sort of chose me. It became um, the thing that I needed and it truly acted as a vessel and a mode of healing for myself as I was working through my own path of mental, emotional, and relational stress during my preteen and young adult years. So I do practice other art forms, as you mentioned, including, you know, digital illustration, animation, printmaking, woodwork, fiber, sculpture, um, yet the frequency of those is, is less than ceramics. And I think that as a current teacher of ceramics, I, I teach introduction to pottery at Art Shack Brooklyn. I think that I sort of use the foundations of clay as a medium and the concept of narrative within my creative arts therapy practice in connection with 3D animation at my position at the animation project. So I, I really believe that clay, unlike other mediums, is one that's naturally responsive to human feelings it, it, it really gets back down to the body. That's what we are. We are humans and we, we start with our body and everything is stored in the body. And so I think it has this vigorous power to sort of accurately and, and really absorb a, a person's emotions, like at any given moment, you know, in doing it sort of like yields your deepest feelings, even though you don't expect it to simply because you're touching it with your hands. And I think um, it sort of provides that emotional release. And so unlike other mediums where you have like a pencil in your hand and you have something mediating between you and the art form. I feel like you are the art and the art is you because you are really actually physically touching it. That makes so much sense. Um, I I never thought about it that way. It just always, I've taken like a few art classes and, and working with clay just always felt, first off, it feels good. And for the reasons that you just described, wow, you know, that's more than likely why, um, yeah. you know, you're really, you're really touching, you're really feeling it. You're really having that intimate experience with whatever you're molding. So thank you so much for clarifying that for us. Um, and so let's talk history. Um, we'd love to know where you're from and maybe one thing cool, creepy, or important <laughs> about <laughs> your hometown that most people don't know. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, born and raised in South City, uh, but went to school in a large white suburban community. Um, I think most people don't realize it. I think this is perhaps not so cool, but important to me. But I think growing up in St. Louis, you're sort of inherently aware of the deep-rooted segregation and sense of racism that sort of comes along with being from the Midwest. I think the Midwest is a little antiquated and still and stagnant. And so I think Adding to that and going to school in the white suburbs, I'm, I was frequently reminded of, you know, your race and their lack of privileges and all that makes you not white. So those things, of course, largely influenced not just my personal work as an artist, but it also purposely influenced my choice to represent myself as a black artist and clinician with the goal of paving the way of other 
for the, the, paving the way for other Black people to heal and have a voice. Um, I think I, I was brought up to recognize the world around me and how to fit into it, but more so I was taught to consider the ways in which I don't. So to really acknowledge those deeply entrenched racial and economic barriers that come from St. Louis that existed in my day-to-day, in my neighborhood, in my relationships with others, both Black and white, is sort of what got me where I am now. And I think that's something that's sort of cool. That's very cool that um, <laughs> you're... that. First off, let me back up because I'm from the East, I'm from Baltimore. So the East coast, um, for those who don't know where Baltimore is, it's in Maryland. Um, (laughs) and I feel like, and this may just be me, but I feel like until the internet really became a thing. And like in recent years that there has been so much racial tension on the internet, like loudly and and publicly Mm -hmm. that here on the East Coast, especially since there is such a large Black, African-American, whatever, you know, folks choose to identify as population, that we never really thought about the fa- the Midwest. Like, mm-hmm. I can say, like, growing up, like, the mentality for most Black people on the East Coast was just that the Midwest had white people. And, yep. um, and that, like, that that's where the conversation stops unless somebody had like one random family member in like some town. Um, and so just the, the idea that, um, and I, I just appreciate what your work does so much. You're on the East coast now, but the idea that, um, everything that, you know, can come from your work or that you inspire other people to do really is, it started with your story there. It's shining a light on more places that may or may have been or, or are like your hometown. And it's really providing a pathway for liberation for so many people, um, you know, spoken or unspoken, like you said, through the medium of, um, you know, clay and, and working through ceramics. And um, I appreciate you sharing, you know, the your your healing journey and, you know, the way that you're magnifying topics like that because I do, and I won't get too deep into this, but um, a couple of the last couple of episodes, we've really been talking about um, segregation and racial tension and zoning lines and things like that when it comes to the education gap in general. And I just, I think that is just such an important thing for us to talk about publicly when it comes to education and the education gap. Um, it can be so easy for people to, you know, for society to throw fluff over and say, oh my goodness, I don't know why these kids are falling behind. And it's like, we know, <laughs> what yeah. it is, you know, of falling behind. We know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for folks who may not have been cognizant of things like this, even there are places in the Midwest, on the East Coast, on the West Coast and around the world where segregation is still a thing and where there are plenty of um, black and brown children um, who um, and even white children who can who can see and recognize that these things are happening. Mm-hmm. So in our kids world, it's not only what the adults wish for kids to experience it's the real experiences that kids are going through and hop hopping off my soapbox now no um, I love it <laughs> <laughs> and so um speaking of you know childhood or your history can you recall your oldest um memory where you were enjoying the art making process like where were you what were you doing maybe what were you thinking yeah um, my oldest memory of making art is from when I was about five maybe six years old um, at that time, my family went to church on Sundays pretty regularly. I I was brought up um, Christian Baptist, but I I did I definitely don't practice it nearly as much as I did then. Um, I don't know. At the time, I was a very active child. It was really hard for me to sit still through anything, especially church. 
So yes. um, my mom, yeah, really impossible, honestly. So my mom would begin to create sort of like draw, drawing challenges for us. Um, my mother is an artist as well. And so we would spend our time in church honing in on our, our skills of drawing portraits of each other in the back of, of the church pamphlets. So it's funny that they're portraits because I hadn't really thought about it na- until now, like I'm talking to you right now. And it sort of seems like full circle that I've come yeah. into this space as an artist using portraiture in my own ceramic work. Yeah, that's wow. I was not expect like who knows what someone's answer is going to be, but I definitely wasn't expecting that to be the answer. Um, <laughs> and I think it's so it's kind of hilarious because my um, family, when we were younger, we went to church 10 days a week. <laughs> And yes, um, it is quite the challenge and the pamphlets can be a saving grace. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> pamphlets and a pencil and maybe a mint or something to get you right. through hunger. But, <laughs> um, so you have trail, trailblazed a dynamic career in the art space, but keeping it real, when many folks hear the words art and college in the same sentence, there tends to be a different response than if we were talking about college in the medical field or college in tech. So mm-hmm. what did your undergraduate college experience look like? Um, what did you major in and why did you make that choice? Yeah, um, my undergraduate education looked like me going to a state school. I went to Truman State University in Kirksville, Missouri. It's in northern Missouri. Um, I studied psychology. I got a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology with a uh, minor in statistics. And I also had a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Studio Art with a concentration in ceramics. So I double majored. um, And I spent all my time studying, like all of my time, (laughs) and um, really finding spaces where I could um, very much so ignite my desire to bring two, what's often seen as two very different um, disciplines together. You know, we talk about going to a liberal arts school and it being interdisciplinary, but really what does that look like and how do you practice that? And that became something that was important to me. I knew what art therapy was when I was coming into my undergrad, but I didn't know how to make it happen in the way that I wanted it to happen. And so I went in with undergrad, grabbed those two degrees and really engaged in how is it that I can make a lot of noise and bring them together. Because I will say the two the two did not fit very well at the school. They definitely were up against each other all the time, art and psychology being science and art. Um, but I think they work perfectly together. So I studied both of those. I, I graduated and I moved to New York and um, got my master's at um, Pratt Institute. Uh, I studied there. And in that time is when I really was able to hone in on my skills as an art therapist and have more of an opportunity to um, really de- define myself as an artist and as a clinician. Um, I'm now based in Brooklyn, and I and I I am working at the animation project. And to be honest, I got my I first got involved with the animation project as a graduate level intern. I was there working as an intern, working in my final clinical training hours for my master's, and I had the opportunity to come in to tap as an art therapist, a ceramicist, and the only person of color within the clinician sector of tap. Um, so I think holding both the role of a clinician and the artist, I, I always was trying to figure out how to bring the space between them together, unite them into a collective identity, and and really allow myself to form a dual self that tailored both of my loves, uh, art and social emotional well-being. Um, so yeah, 
from there, I, I don't know. I, I've worked in many different settings. I think it's hard when you see yourself as both an artist and a healer. Sometimes they don't speak to each other the way you think they would. You know, I, I've previously done clinical work at inpatient psychiatry hospital settings um, with acute inpatient psychiatry. Um, and I, you know, I just became more interested in working in spaces that fostered more community-based work, um, which is why I work at the Animation Project and um, Art Shack Brooklyn, both nonprofits. And so I think being able to be in a space that mirrored my work as a culture worker, where it uniquely placed youth in the forefront, became important to me as I slowly started to, to identify what it meant to me to be an art therapist. So um, I think... I don't know if that answered it in a weirdly weird way, but I, I think I always knew that I was indecisive and that I could make all things happen together. Hey, first off, I'm doing cartwheels across this room right now <laughs> um, because I just like it. what you're doing, what you have done. It really speaks to um, a lot of the mission that we have, you know, on the podcast for youth, for children. And like just to see you as an like an, an adult who is living living the mission of pulling something together. Maybe someone else can't see the vision. Maybe people looked at you like you were crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, what is she trying to do here? But like, isn't that why one of the, you know, one of the biggest reasons why we're here as human beings is to maybe create something that no one has ever seen before that many people can't envision and really just doing it. And, and you know, people understanding what you're getting at and just changing lives through what you're doing versus mm -hmm. trying to verbally prove it always just doing it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I love to rewind just a bit um, for folks who may not, you said that you um, in, in college, you also studied statistics. Um, yeah. And so we talked a little bit before the show um, a week or so ago about the, how statistics plays a role and, and um, you know, grant writing and things like that when you work with um, whatever nonprofits you may be working with or do work with. Mm -hmm. And could you kind of like briefly just um, for those who may not be under, understand the concept of, hey, this is how art and statistics works in this way. What in what way do you um, use statistics to benefit art programs, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um Back in undergrad, I was doing heavy research when it came to um, psychology, but because, of course, I wasn't just doing psychology, I was doing art therapy. I was doing statistics in relation to art therapy. So looking at when someone is using an art form and says it is useful for them, or when someone's using an art form and says it's not useful for them, what does that mean and how does that look? So using both um, statistics and qualitative uh, qualitative and quantitative. So both math and the things where people say verbally or they explain their experience and looking at statistics in that way. When you know whether or not something is working or whether something is um, could be better, that is how you, you make improvement. And so from, from there, being a person who was deeply entrenched in research in her undergrad on multiple research teams and, and publishing research in my undergrad, when I got to graduate school, I found that art therapy was a space that highly influences both the psychology and art spectrums, but because we see ourselves as creatives as well, we oftentimes lean into the art. And I think it is often believed that artists don't have much uh, scientific backing or reasoning behind what they do, right? People are told that if they go study art in school that they're not gonna have a job, 
Um, I'll tell you, I've had many jobs <laughs> and, and I think that no, that's not true at all. And I think once you know something works and you're able to say, look, it works right here, yeah. it gives you even more so of a reason. You know, you got people up above you who are going to tell you that things don't work. But if you can hand them a piece of paper that says, actually, I did a poll and it says it does, then it's a much different conversation. And so right now in my role as um, a clinical program associate at the animation project, and as a grant writer at the uh, at Art Check Brooklyn, I am really allowing myself to analyze the data that we're receiving from our participants, taking the things that are said from them, and coming up with um, real summaries of their experience, so that we know that whoever's funding us, whoever's coming to us to to do even the programming itself, who wants to be a community partner, knows that the work that we're doing is actually worthwhile and is actually making a difference. You can do things all day. And if it's not making a difference, then what's the point, right? And so I think um, for me, statistics is a way of grounding my creative side. I've always had both sides of myself. I think I'm a little analytical, but I'm also rather creative. And so being able to bring statistics to that was important to me. And I, and I really have seen it be useful in many, many, many spaces. I've previously worked at a nonprofit for housing and employment and healthcare in St. Louis. I've worked as a family programs art educator at the Whitney Museum. Um, and I've worked in various other institutional and, and workshop and private lesson settings. And whenever you able to have something that supports you, especially when you are an artist, a woman and you're black, then it is more so, um, going to be that needed guidance and structure and foundation to speak for you when you don't necessarily have the space to use your own voice to say it works. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for for sharing all of that with us. And I really hope it provided like some clarity for folks. Um, I know, it, first off, art saves the world. Um, <laughs> and it's just, you know, I, I look forward to the day where, um, where there doesn't have to be so much proof. I know proof is important. But I think that, you know, um, and statistics are, you know, paramount, like you said, if you're not making a difference, then what's the point? And I, I hope that my hope is that after a few, maybe decades, <laughs> Of, you know, proving that art and, and, and numbers do can marry that people will start trusting the power of art more, um, even if there may not be numbers there to support it. And um, we all know, especially when it comes to numbers and funding, those of you who may be looking to get an art program off the ground for yourself, that when folks are running an organization or when folks are running a business, the numbers have got to be there. Um, that's just the way that it is. So thank you for dropping that knowledge on us. And I, um, I, I'm, I wonder, like, have you ever, when you've gotten to the therapy space or the healing space, um, and you had maybe, of course, you know, confidentiality is, is, is in, in play here, but mm -hmm. have you had an, an experience where you had someone who just didn't believe that art therapy will work for them? They were like, sure, I'll try it. But you know, this definitely isn't going to work. And then afterwards they, their mind was just blown. Oh, every time. Like every, every time, anytime an art therapist goes into session, they've got someone saying they can't do art or this isn't going to work for them or I can't draw or I'm not really creative, all of those things. And I think the really cool thing about art therapy is someone believes they think they know what art is until they realize that art is everything that's around you, right? So you might think you can't use that in a space for healing, but you're using it all the time. It's just learning how is it that I can facilitate? How is it that I can transform it and make it be part of my healing process rather than something that I just go see in a museum or that is talked about in pop culture? 
it's around you all the time. I use movies sometimes as part of my art therapy. People think, well, we're not making art. And I'm like, we're talking about art. That's part mm-hmm. of the art therapy, right? So I think really allowing yourself to broaden your mind and think about what is art to you and what is me- being a creative mean to you. That's when people really start to buy into the process because they definitely come in with a lot of resistance. That is absolutely magnificent. Um, I, I mean, first, you've had like 12 quotes within that um, one <laughs> segment that you gave us there. Um, and so let's talk about your work at the animation project um, as a lead art therapist or just animation in general. Um, for some folks, it might be self-explanatory. But for those of us who may be like, yeah, I know animation, but like exactly what is it? Like, what is animation? Sure. Um, animation is a method um, in which figures are manipulated. And I say figures because it's usually, you know, we're used to seeing humans or humanoid characters, but it could be any figure of any sort. And they're manipulated to appear as moving images, right? So we're taking something that is obviously not moving. It is an inanimate thing, but we are making it animate. Today, most animations are made with computer generated imagery. And so at TAP, we're specifically focusing on 3D animation skills and overall the industry pipeline that's tied to 3D animation. Because there's lots of different types of animation. You know, you've seen claymation, 2D animation, um, just, uh, I mean, there's a, a multitude. I can't even list them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So maybe like for 2D, maybe like the Rugrats back in the 90s, that's 2D, yes, right? Okay. Exactly. And then maybe uh, Monsters, Inc. <laughs> is 3D. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Just like a bit of a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Um, and so if we were to take a walk in your shoes, what does an average week at TAP look like for you? Um, I would say currently my day-to-day or like my week is constantly transforming. But on average, I am running one to three large therapeutic workforce groups and perhaps one or two individual one-on-one art therapy sessions per day. And then I additionally work to do all that aggregation of participant information and demographics and all the clinical information for overall our, for our overall programming and making sure we are meeting our aims and researching and writing grants. So it sounds like I'm doing a lot because I am doing a lot <laughs> in my week. I am doing a lot. But in particular, I would say the group work holds a large part of my weekly time. And within my group work, um, we have youth Um, usually ages 12 to 24, where they're engaging as a team to tell their story. They're learning various aspects of the animation pipeline. And I know I've said pipeline a couple of times, and I can even clarify what that means. Um, Engage with the industry professionals and practice professionalism. All of those things are happening within the group space, and it's being held as a therapeutic space. So it's educational because they're learning a skill, a transferable skill that they can go get a job with. But it is also therapeutic because we are considering that they are humans And their mental and emotional health is going to be important to them when they go into a workforce and they go get a job, right? So all of our groups are co-facilitated by myself and my partner. So always a creative arts therapist and a professional animator. And the group work and the final animations are shared publicly on our social media platforms. And when we're in person, we usually have like viewings of them as well. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I saw a couple of the um, finished products. I mean, w- guys, you're, you're listening, you're here when you get the chance, like listen to the rest of the episode, but like afterwards, <laughs> um, please go and take a look at the great work that youth are doing with um, TAP. It is just phenomenal. And um, and yes, you clearly are doing a lot. Um, <laughs> like I said, on our other cloth, you have eight brains. And um, 
if you could elaborate on what you mean by the animation pipeline, that would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we refer to the animation pipeline, we are talking about the through line that is the, that is occurring when you're creating an animation. So usually you are starting from what we call like the brainstorming stage, right? Where you are perhaps making a, um, a mood board, trying to think about ideas to where that develops your, you, you into a character or story. So maybe character design, storyboarding. Storyboarding then becomes how do I make the story move from one scene to another scene to another scene? So we start to give it movement. We call that a boardmatic or an animatic. From there, we start to think, okay, now we got to get into the actual software and make this happen in 3D. We can't keep drawing it and making flip books, right? So we get into the software and you start 3D modeling. From modeling, we start texturing, which means giving it color and textures and making it feel realistic. Then we got to make it, to make it move, we got to give it some joints. It's just like a human. It's got to have bones. So you're rigging it. From rigging, you go to animating. So now you're doing all the animating. You're doing the environment and finishing it all off. So you just keep on going all the way to the end of post effects and visual effects and things that you probably have seen in movies where you've been like, that was a really cool scene where that thing blew up. All of those things are happening. Sound, voice acting. These kids are able, are, are doing all of those things, all of the pipeline. And so that's the really cool thing I love about it is because even though we are at the animation project and people see animation as solely being the movement part, there's so many parts of the pipeline and animation that you could fall into and you don't even realize that it could influence you into a job in animation. You might be someone who's like, I love to act like characters and use my voice. And maybe I've been doing a lot of drama in high school or in middle school. You could be a voice actor. Like, you know, and like, no one thinks about that. Nobody goes, when I grow up, I'm gonna be a voice actor. Like maybe this generation does, but when I was younger, that was not my mindset at all. Yeah. Wow. That is absolutely amazing. I mean, based off of the description that you just gave, they're like 125 jobs within, you know, through that pipeline. (laughs) And I just, to, to be putting it out there for children, for youth to know that these things are possible. It's just because, um, I've worked in marketing for quite a few years. I took an animation class in college and because, and I was by New York mm-hmm. and, um, I went to school in uh, Teaneck, New Jersey. And so I, from Baltimore, the, the animation and the movie and t- the industry just isn't here really, um, mm-hmm. at all. Let's be yeah. real. Um, and so when I got up there and did get, exposure to all of those all the different things that you're talking about now I was like oh my god (laughs) what huh like what if I anyone else had known about these things you know like you were saying like my siblings and I we did go around and make weird voices all day Mm -hmm. and you know some and there's nothing wrong with reading writing and arithmetic like we need that and mm-hmm. kids also need to know that these, uh, you know, you don't automatically have to spit off firefighter when someone says, what do you want to do for a living? Mm-hmm. You know, we're grateful for firefighters, but everyone has a different calling. And so to be able to get kids exposure to all the different things that are possible so soon in life is just awesome. And so um, I'm going to name um, TAP has four programs, correct? Four program offerings. Usually, yeah. Okay. So um, I'm going to name each one. And can you give us a brief description of each program just so folks know what's available there? Um, So first, the intensive training internship. Yeah. Within our virtual intensive training internship, um, participants take part in a paid nine-month-long program. So it's 228 hours um, where they are 
provided advanced training on Autodesk Maya, which is industry standard animation software, and post-production, so CGI, VFX, motion graphics. Um, they receive supervision by professional animators, guest lecturers, industry professional mentorships, and networking with NYC Animation Studios. Um, these interns receive a stipend and they learn financial literacy in preparation for professional positions um, or additional schooling upon graduation, depending on where they are, because we have, you know, ages usually 18 to 24. So they're all in, in different spaces. And really, they're there to learn how to bolster their opportunities to secure a job placement. Amazing. And what about your school programs? Yeah, um, currently being remote, our programming is running virtually um, so it mainly includes just 3D computer animation therapy groups, which is sort of like a, a weird combination of our school program, NEONS and labs. Um, but usually our school programs look very similar to us running these 3D computer animation groups in person. We go to okay. the schools with computers and the kids are learning the 3D software um, alongside professional animators and creative arts therapists. They are all making different parts of a story. They come up with a story. They do all parts of the pipeline from their story. They start designing their characters and or assets, a.k.a. the things that are not moving. They build the scene. They put it all together. They animate it. They do the voice acting. They find the sounds or make the sounds. And then they make a final film, a final animation film. So that's what it looks like in our school programming. Wow, what a special school experience. Like, I can imagine when a kid walks out of there or, you know, youth walks out of there, they're like, what just happened to me? And can it happen again? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love the school programming because it's one of those spaces where a lot of them, it either has been placed as an optional class. So some of them take it as an optional like art elective okay. or it's an after school thing. So you're getting people who are really choosing to do it, too. And, and when they come in, they know what part of the pipeline they really want to get into. And so you got those people who are very animated. I think when, for me, I feel like I really connect to those who can't sit still in school. I sort of understand that. And, and I think those are the people that end up in those spaces and they're like running around and they're acting out all these scenes. And it really does become a huge asset and valuable to the, to the animation process. So I think school groups are definitely something that I miss ever since, you know, COVID-19 and, and having to be remote. That sounds like so much fun. Like, <laughs> I just let me not get caught up. Let's move on. So, um, Neons, you mentioned that. What's that program? Um, yes. So, in our Neon programming, it very it looks very similar to what we do in the schools, but it's a little bit more intense because um, Neons are particularly ages sixteen to twenty four, and they are um, neighborhood network programming. And so they exist in all of the neighborhoods, all of the boroughs. And so in particular, they hold, they are grabbing large number of adults and young adults from um, uh, tied to both our NYC probation, as well as those who are just interested in those neighborhood sites to come and, and join our groups. And so in our neons, they are also making a full blown animation towards the end. Um, but they perhaps are, you know, having a little bit more, more help on the programming and they're a little bit more advanced in what they're doing. Um, the cool thing about the neons is you could come in and never have touched the software ever before. And, and people come out being able to model and be like, I, I'm going to go to school and model now, you know? And I think that's one of the things I love about the neons is being able to bring together people who are often 
um, stigmatized, you know, those who are coming out of probation and those who perhaps are just in school. And I think when you have a lived experience that's different than someone else's and being able to bring that together in a space like that, like a creative space like that, you just come out with the most coolest counter narratives you've ever seen in your life. Like, I don't know. I, I think the school programs and the neons are definitely those two that um, in particular school programs are usually like our middle school sites and maybe some high school sites, but our neons, you're really bringing in um, a multitude of community programs. That's wonderful. That is um, so needed in so many places. And I'm so glad <laughs> that you guys are doing it there. Um, and are the animation labs like within these programs or is that something completely different? The animation labs are a step up from our neon. So basically the idea is that maybe you saw us in school and from school you were like, I'm going to still go to them even after I'm in school or I'm going to go and go after school and join a neon site. And then from neons, you've been learning these skills and now you've had enough skills to where you can go to the animation labs. So the neons are incentivized and our animation labs are usually incentivized as well. Um, but they start to be treated a little bit more so like the interns where they're like in between. So it's like the pre-internship internship. Um, so they're really honing in on a specific type of skill in the in the labs. Fantastic. Um, yeah. And so uh, I, I know you I remember you mentioned that you were a child and, you know, when you were a child, you you were like, I got to move. I got to move around like that's just <laughs> what you needed to do and that you really enjoy working with children, um, all children, but children who also like to move and be active um, as well. And so I wonder, um, can you recall a time where one, maybe not maybe one of those kids that you worked with or another child's words changed your life um, and what was said? Yeah. Um, honestly, I will say more often than not, the things that the kids say to me or that young adults say to me, I immediately am like, okay, so I'm just going to take them as my words of wisdom everywhere. <laughs> but I, I definitely have one in particular that stands out to me. I, I had someone tell me, this isn't the end, it's the transition. Wow. And first of all, I was shocked it came out of their mouth because I was like looking at them and looking at their age and I was like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but I think these words in particular stuck with me for various reasons. But most importantly, I think I latched onto it because it it really did create an, a space that it, it, le it left things for me to be able to, it left room for me to be able to change and that be okay. Yeah. Right. I, I think I find that in our world, we're so often met with dualities of right and wrong and leaving room for transformation and permission to mess up or transition into other things is, is very slim. And so I yeah. felt like those words in particular was so insightful and valuable to me because as I continue to do the work that I do, it's words like these that give me permission to shift, to be enough and that be okay. I'm always trying to be extraordinary. And I think sometimes it's okay to be ordinary and to transition. And so I think those words in particular, I love. That, I mean, wow. Again, three million quotes within this whole interview. And <laughs> there's, there is so much extraordinary in the ordinary though, right? Like, it's yeah. like, you know, we don't get to choose what's extraordinary. Right. <laughs> um, who knows? Every little thing that we do could be, but mm -hmm. I won't get too deep into that right now. Um, <laughs> I do want to ask you, um, you know, many tap program participants have gone on to work um, with companies like Nickelodeon, Blue Sky Studios, Cartoon Network, which is awesome because like they're young. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and outside of TAP, you personally sculpted um, a very special award. 
Um, the town hall's first inaugural Lena Horne Prize for Artists Creating Social Impact, um, an award that celebrated Solange or celebrates Solange Knowles. Um, and so nerves and confidence can play a big role in whether youth and even us adults seize great opportunity or fail to rise to the occasion in whatever we do in life. Um, so how do you prepare youth and even yourself to rise to the occasion when these notable brands or these really um, monumental opportunities arise? Um, I think as a creative arts therapist, when I'm working with youth or even as an artist working with youth, I, I'm there as a facilitator to their journey of developing their self and ego. Um, I think when we are younger and, and sometimes even as adults, because I would say I'm still doing it now, um, we believe that our worth comes outwardly, you know, from the perception and opinions of others. But in the process of developing and, and really strengthening your own ego and self-confidence, you find that your worth is is truly and, and wholly dictated inwardly from and by yourself to yourself. And I, and I think that's liberation. Um, any opportunities that I have personally received for myself, I see as an invited moment to take up space and make sound. And as I mentioned before, um, uh, being a black woman in a white suburban school in the top 10% of my class, I didn't have much room to be heard. And so I think, you know, growing up and still living in spaces where others try to define who I am, what I do and whether it's good enough, um, that's influenced the subject matter of my work as an artist and a clinician. And so I, I very much so think it plays a part in my ability to combat anxiety and, and exude a self-confidence when I when I get these opportunities. Um, I think it sort of naturally unfolded as a visual representation of my resistance and resilience and, and redefinition of what it both means to be Black, an artist, and a clinician in this world that undervalues you at every turn. So I think I, think I literally uh, have my own personal experiences, and I hope that in my own developing process of creating my self and ego, I'm able to, to help someone else do the same. That's a beautiful. And thank you so much. And um, before we wrap up, I do want folks, I do want you to tell folks about your, um, your ceramics company and about the work that you do with Art Shack um, Brooklyn. Um, yeah. It's just amazing guys. So listen up. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, during COVID, because so many things are happening, I started my, my business, Carlin Ceramics. Um, it's a small black owned business by myself at this current moment. I have some people that help out, but, uh, currently it's just a business of one and it involves small batch ceramics and larger show work. So it's one space where I really delve into being an artist at this current moment. Um, and there is a little bit of my art therapy on there as well, but my hope is that it will begin to expand and develop into just not an online platform, but pull together other healers and, and other creatives um, to ultimately become a space of therapeutic practice, specifically clay therapy and art gallery of clients' work. So I would love it to be a space where um, people of color were able to come and do clay therapy and and then show their work um, and have a voice and, and be seen. So that is the end goal of it. It has not gotten there. It's only groundwork at the current moment. But one way in which I do that is I teach at Art Shack Brooklyn um, as well. I've been at Art Shack for three years and I recently had the opportunity to start a new class there, um, Introduction to Wheel for POC teens. So it's for teens of color in particular in Bed-Stuy, New York. And so being in Brooklyn and living in Bed-Stuy, I am very connected to the community there. And I think teens are often 
underlooked. We look at kids a lot. We look at adults and in, in, in geriatrics, but sometimes teens don't get as much programming. And so in that space, they come. It's a free class. I, I recently just actually got a private donation of more money to fund more classes to these teens. Ooh. I'm really excited. I'm super, super excited. It's a free class, 100% free four-week class. So they learn how to throw on the wheel um, in four weeks and make many, many different things. Um, and you can take it as many times as you want to. That's another caveat. You just got to sign up. Um, so I, I will, of course, make sure that you have those links too, because I think um, the work that is happening in spaces like Art Shack as well is, has been really valuable to me as in, in addition to the work that I've been doing at TAP and, and in my ceramics business. Well, thank you so much, Nala. Guys, you heard her. For, you heard her. She said it was free. She said it's free. <laughs> now, don't you come. You know, Mariah, hey, what can my kids do? If you are in Brooklyn, um, if you know people who are up there can get there or close to there can hop on a train, um, yes. you know, whatever you can do, make sure you take advantage of this awesome resource. And maybe this will inspire folks in other areas of the country or world to provide some of the same sort of programming. I'm going to drop the links to the animation project to Carlin Ceramics and also to Art Shack Brooklyn in the show notes so that if you guys want to learn more, sign up, what have you, you absolutely can. Um, now, are there any social media accounts that you want us to be aware of? Absolutely. Um, definitely follow me on Instagram. It's at carlin.ceramics. Carlin is C-A-R-L-Y-N-N-E. And um, you can, of course, visit my website. And then um, also follow the animation project. That's where all of our programming is constantly um, changing. And we have um, Instagram lives often, they're free, where you get to hear from industry professionals. So if you want to hear from someone from HBO, you could do that for free on Instagram live. Um, that Instagram is at the underscore animation underscore project. So both of those would be great because you'll love them. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for your work, your wisdom, being here with us, Nala. And I hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. So what'd you think? How will you take what you learned today on the Ed Gap Evolution podcast to make sure that more children and families know that they have more options for building a magnificent future? If you like what you heard and want to get notified when the next episode goes live, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll notify you when the next episode is out. Don't forget to check the show notes where I share information on today's guests and yes, we do have a website. You can always pop in on us at www.eggapevolution.com. Again, I'm Mariah Phillips, and I leave you with this. Embrace the evolution, y'all.